All right, so we're in the book of Galatians tonight, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 29 in a study I'm calling Law School, and you'll see why. Um, as, we, as we go through this passage, we're going to talk about the law of Moses and how it relates to God's revelation and how it relates to us today, and so good stuff from uh, the Apostle Paul. So let's pray. So, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, Lord, and that you would minister to us. Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, we believe that it's inspired and that it's prophetic. And that, Lord, just as Jesus was, you know, feeding the, you know, Lord, the people that he, you know, they had the five loaves and the two fish, Lord, it was, it was there to satisfy us, but yet, Lord, you were able to take that and multiply it, Lord, and to to distribute it individually, Lord, and to have everybody leave full, Lord. In the same way, Lord, we believe that you can do that with your word. Lord, we have this text, Lord, we have this message, Lord, but you're able to take your scriptures, Lord, and you're able to apply it specifically. And so, Lord, Lord we pray that we would leave full tonight, filled with your spirit, encouraged, excited, Lord, for the work that you have for us in this church and through this church. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would minister to us and give us the joy of our salvation as if we were getting ice cream from the ice cream. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. All right. <laughs> that was my introduction, so I'm, I'm just get right to it now. So, so I've been thinking about this. You know, in the work world, people talk a lot about your PD. That's not my PD, your, you know, your job description kind of thing. You know, I work for the government, and so I hear that a lot. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> it's not my PD, I can't do that. Now, if you had to read the Bible, and write a PD or a job description for the Christian life, what would that include? Well, I think one of the things that you would have to include is at times you'll be called, to, called upon by God, who's our supervisor, to do the work of a defense lawyer. Now, here's why I say that. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15. He said, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And so Peter says every believer, not just a pastor or someone who studies theology, but every believer is always to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. Now, the hope that we have is our salvation, this, this faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, the word defense is a Greek legal term. It's apologia, and that's where we get the word apologetics from. Now, this term is used a number of times in the New Testament, but two passages that kind of help us understand this verse are the following. First, Acts 25, verse 16. Festus, who was a Roman official, was talking to King Agrippa about the Apostle Paul. And he was talking about Paul's charges. And here's what um, Festus said. He said, To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. And so Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant he had the legal right to give a verbal defense concerning the charges that were against him. And so Paul was going to act as his own defense lawyer. Second, uh, in Philippians 1.17, Paul uses this word in reference to the gospel. He said, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And so Paul recognized as Peter says, that a believer is to give a verbal defense for the gospel when needed. There's going to be a time when you and I as a believer have to stand up and say, man, I love you, man, but that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
And here is what the Bible teaches. You know, it's a mind-blowing thing. As Greg Laurie says, a Christian who knows apologetics is dangerous. They're dangerous. He says, are you a pastor? Well, no, I'm not a pastor. I'm a Christian. I read the Bible kind of thing. You know, as these Jehovah's Witnesses, these Mormons go door to door and they come in contact with a person who really understands the scriptures, it shakes them. You know, it shows them, wow, the, the Lord is, is here to minister. And so that's our prayer as a church, that every believer would be equipped with the word of God to be able to make a stand, to be able to reason about their faith, to know what they believe. Now, I point these things out because the Apostle Paul gives us a great example of this in the book of Galatians. You see, one of the false teachings that Paul often had to make a stand and say, no, that's false, is about those teachers who would come on the scene and they would start teaching that Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, would have to convert to Judaism and keep the law of Moses in order to become truly saved. They said, yeah, you're saved, that's great, you, know, you believe in the gospel, but you also need to do this, this, and this, and this. And Paul spent much of his writing refuting this teaching because that was really the big heresy that was arising in the first century A.D., so far in this book, we have been brought into the courtroom by the Holy Spirit so we can see Paul's defense. And the reason for us seeing this defense is so we can also be equipped to go out and give a defense. So tonight we're going to go to law school for a night. It's going to be night court, another rerun kind of thing. And we're going to learn about the law and, and how we make a stand for the gospel of grace. And the way we do that is, first of all, by understanding the gospel but also understanding the law in its proper place, why it was given, and, and, and how it applies, and then we'll make application to our life. And so as we look at these things, we'll focus on two points tonight. Number one, the purpose and place of the law and God's redemptive plan. And number two, the position of the Christian by faith alone in Christ. And so first, in verses 19 through 25, we see, we see the purpose and place of the law of Moses in God's redemptive plan. Paul begins in verse 19 here in, in the first part of the verse and says, what then is the purpose of the law? What purpose then does the law serve? It's basically, that's what he's saying. Now the focus of Paul up to this point in chapter three has been to focus on the promises that God gave to Abraham. And we've looked at these promises in relation to the law. We talked a lot about that last week. Now let's talk about these promises for a second because it's important to understand that background in, in, in what Paul's talking about here with the law. The promises that God gave to Abraham is also called the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant, the agreement that God made with Abraham in the book of Genesis. And God revealed this covenant with Abraham through Genesis chapter 12 through 22. And God made these promises to Abraham. We call them unconditional. They're unconditional because it was based upon God alone to fulfill these promises. Something that was conditioned is based upon a person to carry them out, but unconditional means it was based upon God alone. God says, hey, here's these promises, Abraham, and I'm going to fulfill them because they're based upon me. And so that, those are the promises that God made with him. And this is illustrated in chapter 15 when God made this covenant ceremony with Abraham. They cut these animals in two, and then God, we're told, passed through, symbolizing that he would be the one to fulfill this covenant. Now, if you look at all the promises made to Abraham, you can, you can really summarize them into three major categories. And those three major categories are land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Now, these three promises will later be expanded in other covenants that God would give to the nation of Israel. For example, 
God will later in Deuteronomy 29-30 give to Israel the land covenant or the Palestinian covenant. It was a guarantee, a promise that Israel would one day inherit all the land that God promised them. God would later give the seed promise to David in what we call the Davidic covenant. And we see that in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. God here came to David and said, hey David, someone from your line of your descendants is going to sit upon your throne forever. It's going to be an eternal reign and throne. And then there's the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31, 31-34. God said, all Israel will be saved. I will give them a new heart. And, and, and so now, as all of you know, these things haven't yet been fully fulfilled yet. Israel has not yet fully possessed all their land. The Messiah is not yet sitting upon the throne of David in a literal kingdom forever and ever and ever. And also, not all Israel is to be saved. Now, these things will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. Um, you know, and so that's what Paul's um, talking about. But also, Paul is mentioning an aspect that you and I as Gentiles, as non-Jews have in these covenants. It's pretty neat. And so he kind of says, oh yeah, by the way, guys, you guys have a, a place in them too. And, this, and, and here is how he plugs the Gentiles in. He, in relating specifically to the, what was going on in Galatia, he points that how part of this blessing that God gave Abraham, the Gentiles would receive a share in it by their faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that in Galatians 3.8. Look at verse 8. And he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so Paul here takes this blessing aspect that God made to Abraham. And he says, Hey guys, guess what? The Gentiles are partakers of this promise. Now we don't take it over. We don't say, oh yeah, by the way, God has no more promise for the Jews. Sorry, guys, it's all us now. No, he says, no, we have an, we have an application in this. We have, we're, we're now partaking of this, and the reason is, is because it comes through Jesus Christ. And the fact that through Jesus, all the nations will be blessed. Through Christ's death on the cross, he was lifted up that all people could be saved. And so this was the promise that he was referring to. Now this is the background for this question here that Paul raises. So he he talked about all these things you know, throughout this chapter, and then he raises the question, okay, well then why did God give the law in the first place? Because that's what the Judaizers were going to ask. They're like, okay, well that's great. If God made this promise that both Jew and Gentile would be saved by faith alone, and then why did God then later give the law after this covenant with Abraham some 430 years later? And Paul's going to answer that now in the rest of verse 19. He says, it was added because of transgression. That's the first thing he points out. Paul says, you want to know why God gave the law later on? It's because of transgressions. Now, the law shows us that we're a sinner. And that's what the law points out. It shows man that we're a sinner and that we have broken God's law. Now, sin existed before the law was given, obviously. It began in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of, of Adam and Eve there in the garden. And we see it throughout the book of Genesis. But in Exodus, when God gave the law, another aspect concerning sin came about. It's called transgression. And the word transgression means a known violation to a law. A known violation to a law. And so there was sin before the law, but when the law came, then man could know for a fact that he was a transgressor. 
that he had broken God's law, that he had stepped over the line kind of thing. In other words, it showed all men that they're guilty. So that's one purpose why the law was given, is to show every person that they're a sinner, that they have broken God's command. Because as we've learned so far, if you break one of God's commands, then you're guilty of them all. Now, this revelation of sin and the fact that you're a transgressor when you break God's law was a restrainer of sin in the nation of Israel. You see, Israel knew that, man, if they break God's law, judgment was going to come. And so that kind of helped them a little bit, you know, in, in the sin that they did. Now, it didn't help them all the time, obviously. As you read through the Old Testament, they still sinned openly and things like that. And then judgment would come, and then they would repent, and then they would do it again, and judgment would come. But the law was given for much more than, than, you know, than just to show sin. It was to restrain sin. Israel was a theocracy. It means they were governed by God. God was their president. It'd be nice to have God as our president, wouldn't it? You know, God, God, God was their president. God was their secretary of defense. God was everything. And then God was the one who passed down the laws to his people. And God gave Israel these laws in order to protect them, to separate them, to make them different than all other nations of the world. And if they obeyed God's laws, they'd be blessed. But if they disobeyed God's laws, then they would receive judgment. So that's another aspect of why the law was given. Continue through verse 19. We'll eventually make it out of verse 19. I promise you. Verse 19c. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now notice the word till. This word indicates a temporary period of time. You see, the law was never established to be an eternal covenant. The law was temporary. That's one reason why it was given. The law was a temporary covenant, a temporary institution in the plan and the purpose of God. And the reason why it was given was it was to keep Israel until God would send the promise of the seed, Jesus, the seed. So Israel was kept under the law for a time until God would send Jesus. And then once Christ died on the cross, those who believed in him would be freed from the law. Now, often people will teach today, you know, that no, you're still under the law. And, and, and the law continues on, and, and you're still under it. And one of the passages that they'll point to is Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Here's, here's those verses. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law to all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so here's Paul throughout all of his letters saying, hey, by the way, the Gentiles are no longer under the law. People are no longer under the law. But then they say, well, but what about Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew? What was he talking about? Well, here's what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was teaching an audience of Jews what it was to be truly righteous. And it wasn't by keeping outward rituals and, and rules as the Pharisees, but it was to come to Christ and to submit their heart to him, to be dead in, or to be, a, you know, to be poor in spirit, to realize that they're a sinner, to, to have this desire for God. And then from that righteousness, they would truly follow after God's word and God's ways. Also, Christ points out in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to change the law. You see, the Pharisees were saying, 
He's coming to change the law. He's coming to teach something contrary to the word of God. And Jesus very clearly says here, I did not come to change the law. I didn't come to break the law. Christ kept the law. And he even commanded his disciples to keep the law here in this passage. Now, Jesus didn't keep the traditions of the Pharisees. That's where the point of contention was. But Jesus did keep the law. Now, Christ commanded to keep the law and that people were be under the law. And notice in this, until it was fulfilled. They were under the law until all was fulfilled. Now, when was the law fulfilled? The law wasn't fulfilled at the coming of Christ, but the law was fulfilled at the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, yes, Jesus did say at that time in the Sermon on the Mount that they were to keep the law. But he said that because they wouldn't be free from the law until his death and resurrection, until all was fulfilled. And so the law is fulfilled at the death of Christ. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who, who believes. So Christ fulfilled the law through his death. He fulfilled the law by paying our penal substitution. The fact that we broke the law, Christ, who was perfect, who kept the law, then died for our sins in our breaking of the law. And that by believing in him, we're no longer under the law because he fulfilled it. And then he gives us the power to walk in it, to, to keep the, the, the true aspect of it, which is to love the Lord your God and to love others as yourself. We'll, we'll, we'll learn more about the true basis of it in chapter 5 as Paul talks about you know, walking in grace and things like that. But for now, Paul says, it's temporary. It, it, it's given until the seed, until Christ would come. Then once Christ would come, we would now be under grace. And, and, and we walk in grace. Now, the fulfillment of the law not only shows us that we can walk in grace, but it opens our eyes as Gentiles to the blessings that God wants to give us. Now, here's a neat passage. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. He says, therefore, remember that you Gentiles, that's us, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at one time you're without Christ, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And so the law at one time separated Jews and Gentiles. You see, a Gentile, as a Gentile, cannot enjoy the promises of the covenants, the blessing aspect of God's covenant. The law, in the sense, had a spiritual wall there, just as there was a physical wall in the temple. It brought enmity between both Jew and Gentile. But when Christ came, notice this, he abolished the law in the flesh, the ordinance of commandments. That word there for abolished means to render inoperative. So in other words, it no longer has authority over us, which Therefore, it breaks down that enmity between Jew and Gentile. And so now we can become partakers of this promise that God gave to Abraham 
which is that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so the, the, you know, the fulfillment of the law by Christ is a very, very important thing. If Christ didn't fulfill the law, then you and I are in trouble as Gentiles today. And so this is cool for us as Gentiles, but man, this was mind-boggling for a Jew. Think about that. Someone who grew up in Judaism, lived under the law, memorized the law, studied the law, and now here's Paul. Comes out and w- with this new teaching, and it was hard for them to swallow. You know, but, but God was able to work this out, that the church would be one body, no longer, you know, no longer divided, walking in grace. And so that was another purpose of the law. Now, we're given more insight in the end of verse 19 into verse 20 concerning the nature of the law. And Paul says, And it was appointed to angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So the law was also a covenant. It was also an agreement. Just as God made an agreement with Abraham, God also made an agreement with Israel. This agreement that God made was with Israel when they left Egypt. And so they... They were delivered by God out of Egypt. They were brought there to Mount Sinai. And there God says, I'm going to take you, and you're no longer going to be a group of slaves, 2.5 million slaves, but I'm going to make you a nation. And here is your laws, and here is your ordinances, and here is your statutes that you're going to follow. If you obey these statutes and these laws, well, then you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. You're going to be blessed above all nations. And so here is your, you know, your... Declaration of Independence kind of thing, or whatever, you know, your, your articles of, of incorporation. Here, here it is for you. I'm trying to think of something, but I can't think of it right now. So, you know, here, here's your Bill of Rights. And so and, and this is what I want you to follow. And so God made this agreement between them. Now, Paul steps back here in talking about the promise that God made with Abraham and, and talking about the law, and he shows how the promises that God made with Abraham were greater than this covenant that God made with Israel. It was greater based on the fact that they needed a mediator. Now, a mediator implies that there was more than one in this agreement, right? A mediator goes in and they mediate between two people. Well, that's what was going on there at um, Mount Sinai. It was appointed by the hand of a mediator. You see, it was between God and Israel, Moses was the mediator between them. They said, hey, we don't want to talk to God. <laughs> I'm kind of afraid right now about this. And so you talk to God and then come and tell us what he says. Now also we're given more insight concerning when God gave the law. It was appointed through angels. And so it appeared that God used angels to communicate the law to Moses. And then Moses would then take these laws down to Israel. But there was something different about the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 20 points that out. He says... A mediator doesn't meet, uh, mediate for one only, but God is one. And so when God spoke to Abraham, there was no mediator. The promises were given straight from God, and God showed that he would be the one to fulfill it, showing that the promises of this salvation that we have, this blessing aspect that we have through Christ is a guarantee, not based upon us or, or man in, in any way. Now, a couple things um, that we see here concerning Um, this um, contrast are the following. First, we just learned that the law was temporary, but while the covenant made with Abraham was eternal. That's that's one thing. It shows that that it was weaker in, in a sense. The covenant was inferior based on the fact that God delivered it through angels and not just spoke to him directly. And third, the covenant was conditional. It was based upon their obedience. 
And Abraham's covenant wasn't based upon obedience. And so we're getting all this? All right, law school, man. We're, we're in it right now. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So Paul now adds another thing here. The law was not given as an addition to the promise that God gave Abraham. It wasn't given as, as an addition to salvation. It didn't add anything to the gospel. It didn't change the gospel in any way, this promise of salvation. Paul says, God forbid that we would ever think that because God can't lie or, or he can't contradict himself. Now, the reason why the law does not add to or contradict to the promises that God made was because the law can never save in the first place. It was never given as a means of salvation. The law was given as a rule of life. It was given as a way to live. A person kept the law not to be saved, but because they were righteous, because they were saved in the first place. It was how they were to walk. The law was an absolute standard of life and morality. It was how a righteous man was to live. Verse 22, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so, while the law could not save, it did show man that they needed salvation. It showed us that we're a sinner. As I said, it shows that we have broken God's law and that we need a savior. The law couldn't take us into salvation. It can only bring us there. It was Jesus then who it pointed to to bring us in. The classic illustration is given of Joshua and Moses. You see, Moses, who gave the law, could only bring the children of Israel up to the promised land. But it was Joshua who God used to bring them into the promised land, in the same way with salvation. You see, the law can bring us to salvation in the sense of showing us that we're a sinner and that we need a Savior, but it's faith in Christ and the fact he died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead that brings us into salvation. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. So the law was a confinement. It was, it was basically you were held in custody, in a sense, as, as theologians call it, a prison, until the time that Christ would come and set us free from sin and from the law. It was a protective confinement to keep Israel until the time in which God planned to send Christ into the world. Verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so there again, it's a temporary. It was a temporary thing. The law was a tutor. Now the tutor isn't to be thought of as like a schoolmaster, but a tutor in a sense of the um, first century context. A tutor was basically a slave who was appointed to be a disciplinarian over the children. They were responsible for taking the kids back and forth to school and for disciplining the kids until they reached the age of maturity or puberty, and then they would be free from the disciplinarian, and they would walk as adults. And that's what the law was. That's why I was given Israel. It was a tutor. It was to watch over Israel, to be a disciplinarian for Israel, to keep Israel until maturity came, until Christ came. And once Christ came, there was no reason for them to go back under the childish themes of trying to go back under the disciplinarian of, of this tutor. And so that's what Paul's point out. He gives two illustrations, one of a confinement, another one under the tutor. Now we need some application, right? from this. And so, so here's kind of how we can apply this 
to our life. Number one, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises, even at times when it doesn't seem like God is going to keep them. You see, God made these promises to Abraham, right? And then here comes the law after that. But God was faithful to keep his promises and to bring through, even, even so in, in our lives. God, you know, he's made his promises in his word. And while it seems like, okay, what's going on here? What's going on with that? God, you know, trust God. He's going to fulfill his promises. He's going to work those things out. And second, when God speaks to us or he brings things into our life, they're for a purpose. If I was God, I would have just skipped the whole law in the first place thing, you know? Why sacrifice animals? That's, you know, interesting, you know? I mean, why not, why not just get straight to it? And God said, hey, I have a purpose for this. I have a whole, you know, n- number of years that I'm going to have my people under this. And the reason why I'm going to do this is for a reason. We can't always understand the whys of God. And so, you know, God has made us promises. We, we walk by faith, and sometimes things come into our life, and God says, trust me, I have a purpose in this. I'm going to teach you something from this. It's, pre- it's preventive discipline for you through this, you know, as, as you trust in me and, and walk with me. Now, our second point, in verses 26 through 29, we see our position in Christ by faith. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so the previous verses have been all legal. You know, we've been in the courtroom watching Paul defend the faith, but now it's personal. Now we see we leave the courtroom, we take the tie off, and we go home to the family. Paul begins talking about our personal relationship with God. He reminds that you and I, as believers, are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ. That through our faith in Christ, we have been identified with Christ. We've been placed into the body of Christ. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as a law-breaking sinner, but he looks at you as a son or daughter, which is pretty amazing that God loves us. You know, my kids mess up, you know, and they, they, they need to be disciplined, but I still love them, you know, and I still will, will do anything for them kind of thing if it's something that's good and, and true in the same way for God. You know, the law condemns us, but as we come to faith in God, he loves us as a father loves his children. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the same way I love all my kids the same, in the same way God loves all people the the same. The law brought distinctions, but grace breaks down any distinction. A person doesn't stand in a higher standard before God because of a race or because of an ethnicity or because, you know, their position in life. But we all stand in equal standing based upon our faith in Jesus. We're all the same. Once sinners, now saved by grace. Now, while God sees all of us on an equal plane through our faith in Christ, nevertheless, God does have specific roles, say, for men and women in the church, you know, as we serve God, and also distinct plans for both ethnic Israel and for Gentiles. And in verse 29 And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so there it is. Paul gets back to that promise now. God made a promise of blessing Abraham through Christ. And Paul says, hey guys, there's good news here. You you received that promise. And the reason that is because you're Abraham's, uh, and because you received this inheritance from Abraham because you're Abraham's uh, heir. And you're Abraham's heir because you're in Christ. And when God sees you, he sees Christ. You and I are no longer excluded. We're no longer kept apart 
from God as Gentiles, but now we can come and experience the blessing of salvation through Abraham. So in closing, God wants us to defend our faith. He wants us to be bold. He wants us to at times take the the defense of a lawyer and to reason from the scriptures. And the reason why we do that is because we have a hope, and this hope is life-changing. Amen?